Welcome, everybody, to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is a show dedicated to telling the story of coastal advocates, ocean lovers, and mostly this is a show that exists to take a moment and shine a light on people that are being kind to the planet. So just to give you all a little bit of background, I have a long history with our very special guest today, and I am confident that you're going to be just as inspired by her as I am after hearing her story. Um, She is somebody that I have admired for quite some time now because in addition to being a well-accomplished young leader in the conservation field, which we will hear more about shortly, we also grew up together and weathered our awkward stages together in Cumberland, Maine, Um, which is also debatable if either of us really ever left the awkward stages, but rather maybe we just accepted and embraced them. Um, But we were softball teammates for many, many years, and man, this girl can play ball. She's a phenomenal athlete. Um, And before I get too far off on a tangent about reliving our glory days, Let's take a short break so we can keep the lights on here and hear a brief message from our sponsors. Uh, We've got three sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, our faithful supporters who make all of this possible. Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida, outstanding firm for dune restoration with natural dune plants all along the Gulf Coast and in Florida's Atlantic Shoreline DuneDoctors.com, reach out to Frederic Barisette and her team. I'd also like to thank TI Coastal Services out of Wilmington, North Carolina, a, an exquisite coastal engineering firm. If you're there on the Carolina coast and you need coastal engineering services, you should really go to TICoastal.com and learn more about these guys. They do a great job on budget, responsible, exactly the kind of engineering firm you would want working in your community, TI Coastal Services. And LJA Engineering with 28 offices around the uh, great state of Texas. Uh, my good friend Bill Worsham leads the Coastal Engineering Division at LJA Engineering. Find them at lja.com. All right, and we're back. Today I am joined by the Communications and Marketing Coordinator for the Choctawhatchee Basin Alliance, Erica Zambello. So in addition to her role at the Choctahatchee Basin Alliance and being a phenomenal athlete, as I mentioned before, um, and probably someone that has all kinds of dirt on me from our younger years, Erica is a writer and photographer living on the Emerald Coast of Florida. She earned her master's degree in environmental management from the Duke Nicholas School of the Environment, where she specialized in ecosystem science and conservation. She is a National Geographic Young Explorer, which uh, part of that experience entailed completing trips to the woods of northern Maine, which sounds so amazing, um, in each of the four seasons during the fall of 2015 through the summer of 2016. And then most recently, a huge congratulations is in order because she was selected as one of the newest board members for the National Parks Traveler, which is Uh, the world's number one editorially independent nonprofit media organization that is dedicated to the coverage of national parks and protected areas. So congratulations, Erica, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Um, and you can correct me too if I am saying it's chalk to hatchy. Correct? Is that right? <laughs> you actually have it. Not even my parents can say it correctly. <laughs> it's a mouthful, and it's like a little bit intimidating to say. So I needed to make sure that I was saying it correctly. <laughs> A lot of letters, but you're also welcome to call us CBA. That's what okay. we tend to go by for that very reason. Okay, I will do that from now on for the rest of the interview. Um, so this show is all about conservation and ocean and coastal advocacy, but I always like to start by giving my guests an opportunity to share their personal story um, so the listeners can get to know the human behind the advocate. And um, it would be so awesome if you could just take a moment to share a little bit about your background and what inspires you to protect the natural world. Sure. Well, it's very interesting being interviewed by someone who actually knows a lot of my background. So that's a, <laughs> that's a experience. Um, as you know, I grew up in Southern Maine and Maine is an absolutely gorgeous state. So much of the economy, so much of outdoor recreation, so much of people's day-to-day pastimes are based in the environment from hiking to skiing Um, cross-country, downhill, skating, fishing, outdoor recreation and outdoor experiences are just a huge part of growing up, and I was no different. So we lived um, where you and I went went to high school in southern Maine, right outside of Portland, but every summer my family would go up to the Rangeley Lakes region. We would spend the entire summer, no TV, no internet, no nothing, except for Game Boys, I remember. (laughs) But other than Game Boys, nothing except for the outdoors. And that's where I really became comfortable in an outdoor setting and was really interested in um, somehow pursuing that either recreationally or professionally. And the apple really didn't fall far from the tree in my case. My father used to work for L.L. Bean, which is um, a very famous outdoor apparel and gear company. He also is an avid fly fisherman and writes books about fly fishing. And my mom is a forest ecologist who works for the Hubbardbrook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire. So even my parents were always deeply invested in the outdoor environment. And uh, I tried to fight it. I studied government in college, and then I took a job in Washington, D.C. for a foreign policy think tank. But I could never get away from that gut feeling that I was supposed to be working in some capacity, protecting the outdoors and conserving the outdoors for future generations. And that's when I enrolled in the Duke Nicholas School. And, you know, as they say, the rest was history. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, I love the multi-generational aspect of your family, really um, holding that value of conservation near and dear um, to your work and your values and what you care about. And I also feel like we have a similar shared experience, both growing up in Maine, um, but then having a place where we can go to outside of that Portland area um, where we kind of go out into the wilderness because my family also has another place up closer to the Acadia region where we were able to go and completely unplug and just spend time with Uh, the people that we were with up there and entertain ourselves um, by experiencing the outdoors. And I think having that experience was so central to, um, you know, who I am now and who we are now and the careers that we ended up taking. Um, And I also took that route of like, 
not, I don't know if I was like trying to suppress it, but it might've just been not realizing that conservation and protecting the natural world was my calling um, because I was trying to also do so many other things. Like I, I switched my major like four or five times um, and tried a whole bunch of different other jobs before realizing, you know, this is a thing that I really truly love is being outdoors and um, making sure that we can protect it so I can continue to enjoy it and my family and friends and loved ones can. Uh, but something else, as I was rambling on about all of that, that came to mind that I think is so funny to note about Mainers, and I'm not sure if you have this experience too now that you live out of the state, um, is that I find that Mainers have this unique bond when you meet somebody else from there, um, you know, you get so excited and just sort of start listing off like all the people that you know um, in all the places that you go to in the state because there are only a million people or just over a million people. I think it's like 1.3 million now um, that live in the entire state. Most of them live in the southern part. So it's like this weird game that people play. Um, to start going through who you know and what you do to figure out how you guys know each other. And I feel like at the end of the conversation, you like usually figure it out. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I actually cheat. I have kind of like a sirens call because I have a mini L.L. Bean boot on my keychain. It's like four. So do I. <laughs> like people are immediately like, oh, are you from Maine? And it is a small world because I met someone here in my area in Destin and his sister lives down the street from my parents. So the degree of separation oh, wow. is not large. And the other thing <laughs> about Mainers, which I didn't realize until after I left, is for people like us who spend those summers kind of out and away, we generally call it a camp. Like, I'm going yes. to the camp, or we're going up to the camp. But apparently that is not a cool locally common expression, because in college when I would bring this up to explain you know, different aspects of my personality or whatever – People thought for the longest time that I, my parents owned a summer camp. Like that's what they <laughs> thought my parents did because I would always say, oh yeah, we're going up to the camp. So yeah, I have, or non-mainers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have this, have had the same exact thing happen to me um, where so many people from other places that I've lived in my life outside of Maine have thought that we own a summer camp. Um, yeah. But then I, you know, you have to explain that. You know, Maine is so beautiful and it's so different from Southern Maine to Northern Maine, either even from like east to west, that people that tend to live in Maine also vacation and recreate there. Right. Um, so, but like you don't want to sound pretentious and say like my summer home because it's kind of a rustic place. It's camp. You know, there might not be running water and you might not shower for a week. It's like right. different and from a summer home. Yeah. Them too. So it's not like it's just your, not my summer place. It's just the family. Yeah. Jack on the lake or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for listeners that may not be familiar with Florida's geography, and I will include myself in that, um, can you describe the Emerald Coast of Florida for us and which part of the state that is and why it's called the Emerald Coast? Sure. So there's two answers because life is complicated. So (laughs) Trademarked Emerald Coast is the area of coastline along Okaloosa County in northwest Florida. But more broadly, people tend to 
think of the Emerald Coast as the area of the panhandle right where you get into Alabama. So it's kind of that flat part along the Gulf of Mexico. And it's called the Emerald Coast because uh, most of the land is bordered by a series of barrier islands that are facing the Gulf of Mexico, and then the other half is facing um, the intracoastal, a bay, an estuary, etc. And so the water along the Gulf of Mexico is that crazy bright green color because we have good water clarity where we're at, and also because the sand that underlies that water and also makes up our beaches is made of quartz. So the quartz sand actually originates in the Appalachian Mountains. It flows down waterways out of the Apalachicola River in the Big Bend of Florida, and then comes up to our area in Northwest Florida. So that's how our region gets its name, and it's really a magnet for tourists. Which is so fascinating to me because I had no idea that that sand originated in the Appalachian Mountains. And that's also sort of like a Maine to Florida connection. Not to say that it like originated all the way up in Maine and flowed down, which maybe it does. It probably originates more toward like the Georgia side of things. But uh, (laughs) but that's a great little, well, I guess it would be a vast connection to have along that East Coast. Um, and I, I always love asking my guests this question because everybody's answers are so different, although I would be totally floored and amazed if I had multiple guests give me the same answer. But people's connections to the coast um, are so personal, um, and I would love to know a little bit more about like when you think about the coastline, does a specific beach or place come to mind? And what is that place? Where is that place? And what's your connection with it? It certainly used to be the beaches that we had near our hometown in Maine. So Jenna and I grew up going to these beaches called um, Scarborough or Old Orchard. And it's rough sand, not a lot of shells, but some big clams, dark water, and so cold. But now that, (laughs) so here in the Emerald Coast, I've been working here for almost four years and I'm incredibly invested in the ecosystem because everything that I work on is either coastal or estuarine. So I definitely have now that super stereotypical um, view of the white sand beaches, the waving sea oats, the bright green water, because that's what the Gulf of Mexico in my area looks like. So even though I still lovingly appreciate Maine's rocky coastline, definitely the image that pops up is my Florida hometown. Yeah, Maine's rocky coastline. And then, you know, our beach experience growing up was go lay on the beach until you're so hot that you like can't take it anymore. And then go do like a polar plunge in the middle of the summer. Maybe in August you can stay in for more than 10 minutes. Maybe. Yeah. Or or if you get some odd warm current coming through (laughs) and then everyone's at the beach. It's like, did you hear the current is really warm today? Everybody go to the beach. (laughs) So where we live, because in Maine, the coastline is so cliff-like, there's actually not that many beaches. And so the beaches that did exist, Mm -hmm. especially in proximity to Portland, were always so crowded. It was such an ordeal to get a spot, get a spot on the beach, blah, blah. Here, now don't get me wrong, there's like ridiculous periods of summer tourism, but here my my experience with the beach is so much more personal because I choose to go to beach access ways that are far away, that you have to hike to, and so my experience with the beach here is much more of a one-on-one experience, like I can walk for miles and miles and just be by myself, unlike 
as a kid going to Maine, it was like a communal event. So it's just a different way of thinking yeah. about the <laughs> We're like, hey, we have a couple months of warm weather and every single person in the state is about to take advantage of this on this same yeah. beach. <laughs> um, do, so in the region that you live now, do you find that tourist season is more in the winter or in the summer? That is a good question, and it's a common misconception that I almost can't dissuade people from sometimes. So I live in northwest Florida, so I'm practically in southern Alabama, essentially. So we actually do have a fairly chilly winter season. Mm -hmm. So our high season is absolutely June, July, and August because we are thought of as a multi-generational family destination. So that's when everyone gets out of school and everyone comes to our area. We're a big driving destination. So it's the summertime when tourism is crazy. A little bit for spring break too, but we don't have as many snowbirds as Southern Florida does. Yeah. That's interesting. I know. I think when my mind goes to Florida, I just think everybody, like all of the beaches down there are great in the wintertime. But I mean, think about how big Florida is. That makes total sense. So thank you for teaching me something. Yeah. You know, I actually, I really love the beach in the wintertime. I also think that I probably differ from a lot of people in that sense too, but I know that and we'll get to this in, in a few minutes that you're a birder. So you might agree with me on this, but um, you know, the beach in the winter, it's so beautiful and there's this like solace that you can find there and solitude and it's just so peaceful and you can have the place to yourself. So, you know, any chance for me to get out to the beach in the wintertime, I feel like I end up enjoying as long as I'm wearing the appropriate clothing. <laughs> um, I, There's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing choices. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you've moved around to some pretty spectacular states. I know we've mentioned Maine and Florida, but you've also lived in North Carolina um, and then went to college in New York. Um, and I, I'd love to know a little bit more about what, what are some of your favorite things about the coastlines of those states? And have you noticed any similarities or major differences between them? So the states that I've spent most time on the coast are Maine, obviously. We don't have to keep rehashing how much I love Maine, though we can. But I've also <laughs> lived uh, in Virginia Beach near the coast there. And I've lived, as you mentioned, in North Carolina. And though I was about three hours from the coast, we would make frequent trips both to the Duke Marine Lab and also, like you said, to go birding. And North Carolina beaches, especially along the Outer Banks, are similar in that it's a barrier island ecosystem. So barrier islands are not supposed to be stationary. They never were stationary. They were never, you know, meant to be stationary in the future. They're made of sand, essentially. So a lot of the problems that North Carolina has with erosion and with storm surges and things like that is something that we also deal with here on the Emerald Coast because people have insisted on building out on the barrier islands also. And then Virginia Beach is similar to this area in a very different way. And Virginia Beach is quite military dominated. There are a lot of naval bases. There's a lot of special forces stationed in Virginia Beach. And here we have an incredibly large Air Force base. And then nearby in Pensacola, we have another, um, we have another naval base. And so both areas are dominated in that sense by the military. And there's negatives and positives to that. But one of the positives, at least here, is that the military owns a lot of land that they keep 
natural for their training missions, but also um, at the same time for, for wildlife and things like that. So a lot of these areas, even if they're ecologically different, can share characteristics like that. Yeah, and I think that it's a fascinating connection to make between the military and the natural environment and coastline, um, especially down in the Virginia Beach and Norfolk regions where you're starting to see all of these assets and investments that they have, which are like billions of dollars worth of um, really vital tools and uh, vehicles and ships and all of that to keep our our borders safe um, are now they're facing a really complex challenge of how do you maintain this area um, when it's continually flooding? Um, and it reminds me of when I just got out of college, the way I got into the conservation field was taking a few intern internships down um, at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge in Virginia which speaking of barrier islands, that's a series of barrier islands. Um, but there's a NASA base down there on Wallops Island, and they have some of their like most incredible, most valuable launch pads are sitting on top of a barrier island. And when I was living down there, they had to embark on this unbelievably expensive restoration project to bring sand in to re-nourish their beaches um, so they wouldn't lose those launch pads. Yeah, you kind of look back with 2020 vision and you're like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have put that there. <laughs> yeah, everything's so much clearer in yeah. hindsight. <laughs> yeah, the hindsight um, it's back on, not whatever I said. <laughs> <laughs> so given your experiences in all of these incredible places, do you have any moments that are most memorable to you or any that you would like to share with us that stick out in particular as really special um, or formative moments um, out on the water or on the coastline? That's a tough one, but I will choose a experience that happened to me last year. So last year, in addition to my job for CBA, I worked for a contractor that was actually building out a dune structure as a restoration project. So in Destin, the dune used to stretch all the way across the harbor towards the bridge and over time had eroded and filled in the pass and all the stuff. So they were um, building out this dune back again so they could plant it, etc. Now this dune, I mean, this is huge. This is like a 20 foot massive dune that stretches across an entire harbor. So you have to, whatever you think of a dune in your mind, just times it by 10. So it's extremely popular for nesting birds. So my job was to walk this dune, which was about a mile from side, like the circle was about a mile once I made all my stops and things like that. And I had to make sure that if there were any birds nesting on the dune, that it was successfully marked and protected so that the construction crews, et cetera, wouldn't mess with any nesting birds. So I had to walk this route almost every single day for half of February, March, April, May, and a little bit of June. So I bring it up because I had never in my whole life made that regular route anywhere with that frequency before. And it was just amazing to watch the seasonal changes when you're used to seeing a place every day. Like I knew exactly when the migratory birds came in. I saw really uncommon birds for our area, you know, a, a, a black neck stilt, an American avocet. They were just there for a day and then they were gone. 
you know, I saw a bald eagle sitting on a dune, which is um, not very common behavior. And so it was a really impactful experience for me to be so embedded in the seasonal changes of a natural ecosystem like that, even one that was so close to the harbor and the marina, which is obviously full of lights and sounds and human influence. So it's a very interesting experience. And if anyone has time in their busy lives, I highly recommend going birding every day. (laughs) So speaking of birding, a fun fact about Erica for all of the listeners out there, um, we sort of gave a little sneak peek into it earlier in this conversation. She is an avid birder. So shout out to all of the bird nerds out there. Um, Erica, how long have you been birding and what drew you to this activity? I can weirdly tell you exactly how long I've been birding. After I graduated uh, from college, my parents gave me one of those really good point-and-shoot cameras from Canon. So it wasn't you know, a DSLR where you could take the lens off and be all fancy, but it was a really good point-and-shoot that had this incredible zoom lens on it. So I was up in the Rangeley Lake region in like the six weeks between when I graduated from college and when I moved to D.C. And I was just taking pictures of whatever was interesting. You know, I'd always like taking pictures, but it was just like, click, click. Okay, done. There was no there was no thought behind it other than, oh, that looks nice. So I was being a little more contemplative, contemplative with that camera. And it was a good time to see migrating birds, which I didn't know. And so I took a picture of this bird that was hanging upside down on just a regular tree in Maine, and I zoomed in, and it was one of the most colorful birds I had ever seen. I didn't know it at the time, but it's called a northern perula, which is one of the smallest migratory warbler birds that comes up to Maine to breed in the summertime. And it was blue, and it was orange, and it was red, and it was super active, and it had these beautiful eye rings, and it was just so cute. And even though I'd lived in Maine for 22 years at that point, I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't even know what a warbler was. I didn't even know that there were these birds that were so, so colorful and and neotropical. And so that really piqued my interest. And so from that point on, which must have been May or June, until the Christmas of that year, I just liked to take pictures of birds. So I didn't know what they were, but I continually took pictures of them, got a little bit better at taking pictures of them clearly had an interest. And then for Christmas that year, my mother gave me the um, Sibley Guide, which is an ornithological field guide created by David Sibley. And that was it. Now, all of a sudden, I had the tools, the camera to take all these pictures of birds, and then I could race home and look up all of them in my field book. And my mom was a birder. She actually used to intern for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And so she would go birding with me whenever I went home. And it's really been an important part of my life since then. Yeah. And for anybody that's interested in getting into birding, the Sibley Guide is like the Bible of birding. Like that is such a great first book for you to to pick up um, to help you identify any birds that you see. Um, also, if you're just walking around and you don't have time to go birding, um, the craziest thing to me is that birds are all around you all the time. And so many people just don't take a moment to observe them, but they're everywhere. So if you can take, like as you're walking down the sidewalk, even something as like, like for me, I think pigeons are very beautiful birds. 
and people get so upset and angry with them. But like, if you can like, just look at them when you're walking down the sidewalk, like they are really a lot more fascinating than a lot of people lead you to believe. Um, so this might be like a really obvious question for you or like other birders. So you might be like, duh, of course I have one. Um, but do you have a life list? And what is the ultimate bird that you would like to check off of that list? Duh, I have a life list. <laughs> That's what I, do. I have a life list, but it's on an Excel spreadsheet on my computer. So I don't know offhand what my exact total is. It's over 400 bird species now, um, which is it's acceptable. It's acceptable. I think and, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, <laughs> it's more than acceptable. <laughs> I've never really birded in a tropical place other than Belize. I'm I'm okay with it. My nemesis bird, that's what you call it, the bird you want to see, but you okay. have for whatever reason, my nemesis bird is I don't Drum know, roll. I'm, really, I'm, I'm struggling to think because I literally just crossed it off my list like last week. Or not last week, but the week before, and it was a fulvous whistling duck and I literally just saw it so now I'm like hmm, what's the next one on my list so oh. we were having a conversation around Christmas time before you went home and you mentioned a bird I can't remember what it was um but I didn't know if that would spark some sort of actually memory. that does thank you okay you're oh. you're welcome <laughs> so, um, in very southern Florida you can see this bird that's called a mangrove cuckoo and yes, this is what it is because I remember saying this word and being like, that's going to sound really weird on a podcast. But yes, it's called <laughs> a mangrove cuckoo. And I've seen a different species of cuckoo, but the mangrove cuckoo is much rarer and you can really only see it in certain environments. And I've just not spent a lot of time in the mangroves and things like that that it is attracted to. But uh -huh. some year I'm just going to camp out in South Florida till I see one. So that's currently my nemesis bird. <laughs> <laughs> that's great and it would even just be like a fun trip you're like you know what i want to go camping anyway i'm gonna go camp out and find this bird right where i can find this cuckoo <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh do you have a favorite bird and why you are going to appreciate this so much and i bet you you're going to agree with me so my favorite <laughs> bird is the common loon and it's my favorite bird because in they breed in maine and they have this really really haunting series of calls that echo across the whole lake and when I moved to Florida and I was a little homesick in the winter time these very same loons these common loons migrate all the way from the northern United States and Canada to the ocean so they're in the Atlantic Ocean they're in the Gulf of Mexico so even though I was far from home you know in my new hometown I could still see all these common loons that I could once see in my backyard, essentially. So I even imagine sometimes that they're the same loons that eventually go up to Maine. So that's one Aww. of the reasons that they're my favorite bird. Yeah, it's like a little piece of home that follows you down to Florida. I love that. And yes, common loons are also my favorite bird for many of the same reasons. Um, they remind me of home. And I mean, if you look at them, they're just so stunning. With their fierce. Yeah. yeah. And they have that like haunting call, which I feel like is kind of like Maine in bird form. You know, Maine is be beautiful and it's fierce and it's haunting. And when I say haunting, I'm looking at you, Stephen King. Um, and, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like also calming, like all at the same time. They're just a really special species. Um, 
So also, because we're in the business of fun facts about Erica right now, not too long ago, she gave a presentation about knitting while knitting and wearing a sweater that she knit or knitted. I don't know what the past, what is the past tense of that? I think knitted? one half dozen of the other. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know like that is a total sidetrack. And like has nothing really to do with our conversation, but I needed a way to work that in because it is something that gives me so much joy. And I feel like I needed to share that with everyone um, because hopefully it made you smile a little bit and aspire to step up your knitting game. Yes. And it's, it's really hard to be that meta. So really people should be. Yeah. And yeah. here, I'll tie it in for you. So. I am writing more and more articles about knitting outside in the natural world and how people like me with a lot of restless energy and people who have a hard time sitting still, if you bring crafts um, or portable crafts and knitting into the natural world, you can actually sit in one place and really absorb the landscape while your hands are kind of occupied with nervous energy. So that is something that I am more and more incorporating into my conservation writing. So there you go. I knew there was a tie-in. <laughs> yes. Thank you for bringing that full circle. It is so relevant that I shared that with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now I'd like to pivot a little bit to talk about your work. Um, so can we just start off with having you give us some background about CBA um, and what you all do there? Absolutely. So the Choctahatchee Basin Alliance, or CBA, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving swimmable, fishable waterways in our community. So unlike other nonprofits, we only focus on the Choctahatchee Bay watershed in Northwest Florida. So our organizational boundaries are defined by the watershed boundaries instead of by a county or a state, et cetera. Our organization was founded in 1996 because local stakeholders realized that the Choctahatchee Bay was actually pretty healthy, especially if you compared it to nearby estuaries. But they wanted to be forward-thinking, and they wanted to say, how can we maintain this level of estuary health given how many people are moving to Northwest Florida? Because Northwest Florida's population is growing and will continue to grow. And so this group of stakeholders essentially formed the Choctahatchee Bay Basin Alliance. And for a long time, it just had a handful of staff. It was very dedicated to education. They began a water monitoring program. So we have uh, decades of data of water quality for the Choctahatchee Bay, its river, and nearby coastal dune lakes. And today we have a staff of five full-time people. We have programs in education, research, monitoring, and restoration. We also have part-time staff helping us with those goals, and we are attached to a AmeriCorps chapter that is about eight to ten people, and they also help us achieve our organizational goals. And so we're really a, a small but nimble organization with a multifaceted approach to maintaining fishable, swimmable waterways in our community. And that's a pretty sizable amount of AmeriCorps volunteers that you got that you, that you guys have, which I imagine is unbelievably helpful in your day to day and um, helping achieve your goals. Yes, it would be impossible to achieve our goals without them because they're really helpful in going to the schools with us. We reach two to three thousand students every month, depending on if it's 
school year or in the summertime, and AmeriCorps comes with our education staff to help teach. Additionally, AmeriCorps works directly with our restoration coordinator to build living shorelines. So they're definitely an integral part of our program. Yeah, so you've touched a little bit on um, some of the work that you guys focus on from the Living Shorelines to Education initiatives. What are some other projects and initiatives that you are working on through CBA? Our monitoring team is so great, and they've really expanded the things that they're looking at. So we take water quality readings once a month from over 130 sites throughout the watershed. And this is only possible because we have about 30 citizen scientists volunteers who take their own time in their own boats and take the equipment out to wherever their specific station is, and they collect all that water quality data for us. And so with the ability of the citizen scientists, our staff can get out to the water quality monitoring sites that you know need to be done for whatever reason, and then the citizen scientists can take care of the rest. So that's a critically important part of that program, and local governments use that data, local citizens use that data, we analyze that data and create reports, and it's this really great baseline. Additionally, in the last few years, we've started monitoring seagrass. As I'm sure uh, most people know that are interested in coastal ecology, seagrass is an amazing indicator for the health of your waterway. So we're trying to see if coverage of seagrass is changing over time, is decreasing, is increasing, and we're only on our like third year of data on that project, so that will be ongoing. Last but not least, and definitely most complicated, is our, our new monitoring of red tide. So Florida has been in the news so much this past year, deservedly so, because we just had a horrific red tide year, like to the point where I couldn't even follow some of the organizations I usually follow on social media because it was just too painful to see all the horrible carnage essentially brought by red tide. But red tide is kind of complicated to explain. So red tide is a naturally occurring algal bloom. There's records of red tide that go back hundreds of years. However, human activity is definitely influencing the size and scope and length of algal blooms. So hotter temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico mean that the algal blooms can bloom earlier, can stay longer, can get bigger, and they can also feed on nutrients that are coming into our estuaries and coastal areas through stormwater runoff, agricultural runoff, etc. And so it's a naturally occurring algal bloom, but we're definitely making it worse. So I'm just going to add another layer of complication. So yeah, <laughs> just keep layering it on. Layering it. It's like a food network dish. So yeah, <laughs> in South Florida, there's no there's no ambigu- ambiguity. Like there were blue green algal blooms, there were red algal blooms. But in our area, we had a series of fish kills, and they were pretty bad. And it's, you know, it's really, it's really painful for people who live on the bay or who enjoy the area to see some of their favorite species um, turning up dead in those numbers. So it's a very scarring, painful experience. We went out and monitored the bay uh, periodically throughout the fish kills, and we only popped red tide in some of our samples. So we could never say definitively what was causing the fish kills. So we we would 
We would never say that it wasn't red tide because we did get one sample, but it wasn't like this crazy proliferation of red tide that was turning up in all of our monitoring. So it remains a little bit of a mystery. And we didn't like that. And obviously the community didn't like that. So we've sure, expanded yeah. the number of places that we're testing for red tide. We've added a bunch of red tide monitoring sites in the Gulf of Mexico. So we obviously didn't like that. So we decided to add some water monitoring sites in the Gulf of Mexico just to look for red tide. And we're doing this in coordination with the counties and also with the FWC, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And we hope by adding this monitoring that we will be able to get better data the next time there's a potential algal bloom or fish kill so we can be a little bit more definitive about what's causing it because uh, people rightly get frustrated when they don't know and we are going to try to fill that gap with our other partners. Yeah, and I actually just read something this morning that said um, the water quality tests off the coast of Florida found no traces of red tide for the first time in 15 months, um, which would be a really positive step in the right direction. Um, but you're right. I think it's so important to expand the, the monitoring of all of this to expand our own understanding of what's causing it. Um, so that we can get the, to the root of the problem and hopefully avoid situations like this into the future. Um, and then just for listeners that might not be as familiar with um, agricultural runoff and algae and fish kills. And um, so there are many different ways that an algae bloom can happen. But I think the ones that we're specifically talking about right now, and Erica, because you're our expert on the ground, you can correct me if I am wrong, Um but I'm thinking about my experiences working with the Chesapeake Bay, which also has a ton of agricultural runoff that leads to large algal blooms because you think about all the nutrients that we put on our land and our fields to help our crops grow. A lot of that will then wash off into our rivers and streams, make its way out into the bay um, or off our coast. And then because algae also really loves that nutrients, they thrive on it, eat it, um, grow. And then when they die, the whole process of their decay depletes the water of oxygen. And then anything living in that area, um, we refer to that as dead zones. Um, you know, there's a lot of species that will die because of that. Um, you also have like seagrasses suffer because of that too. And like you think about bivalves, um, but then you also have like certain types of algae can get people sick. Um, so is that along the lines of what we're dealing with in Florida with these blooms or am I a little bit off there? You're right. Definitely. We also have big problems with urban and suburban runoff. So think of lawn fertilizer, think of even things like dog poop that washes into culverts, which in turn washes into the waterways. All of that is a problem. And red tide is not a human health concern per se. It's very uncomfortable to be around red tide. You cough, your nose runs, it doesn't smell very good. But unless you have an underlying disease or a respiratory problem, you're probably not going to be seriously affected by red tide. However, it is unbelievably deadly to natural life, and you don't want to eat anything that's died from red tide poisoning. So it has an incredibly negative effect 
obviously on natural systems, but also on tourism. And it really, it really packs a punch in these areas because tourists reroute all their trips and tourism is a huge driver in the Florida economy. And that's why we're really appreciative that the new governor seems to be taking a more proactive approach to deal with some of these algal blooms and water problems. And so I know that we've been focusing a bit more on the algal blooms, um, but I'm interested in learning more about how you've noticed the Choctahatchee Basin and the Bay um, evolve over the years. Um, In addition to algal blooms, is anything else changing in that area? Um, And if so, is that changing your approach to monitoring and education, restoration, and research at all? kind of circling back to how you all are expanding your monitoring of the algal blooms. Is there anything else that um, changing climate and changing conditions is uh, leading to you and your organization evolving with it? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm also glad you asked it that way because we we're talking about algal blooms more, obviously, because it's been in the news and that's a new part of our monitoring program, but it's actually a very small part of what CBA does. So, um, One of the things that we've been working on for a long time and we're just getting better and better at as the movement grows is creating living shorelines. So in our area, we are experiencing a lot of bay erosion because of storm surges, storm waves, wave energy, and also boat wakes, especially from boats who are driving very close to shore, which we wish they wouldn't do. And so what CBA is doing is working with public lands, military lands, and private homeowner lands to create green infrastructure alternatives to things like seawall and riprap. So the problem with seawalls and riprap is that it decimates the actual natural environment that used to exist where the land met the water. Additionally, if you have a seawall and your neighbor doesn't, all the wave energy that whacks into their seawall is going to erode your neighbor's property. So it kind of just compounds problems for people who don't have seawalls. Moreover, seawalls and riprap can cause scouring, and they're also honestly just not very attractive to look at. So what we're doing in areas that um, make sense is we create these oyster breakwaters. And what an oyster breakwater is, is it's either recycled oyster shell that we collect from local restaurants, or it's small limestone rock pieces. And we create these reefs uh, a little bit off from shore, that absorb that wave energy. So the waves whack into these reef breakwaters that we build, and then it doesn't hit the shoreline with as much force. And so what that means is the shoreline can either slow down the erosion process, stop eroding, or actually build out. So we have a homeowner who installed a living shoreline a few years ago, and she actually has more property in front of her house now than she did before because the the sediment is actually building back up behind the reefs. So one of the other things that we do is we actually plant smooth cordgrass or Spartina alterniflora behind the reef breakwaters. And these marsh grasses, their roots hold down that earth and help it to accumulate. On some living shorelines, we take oysters that our volunteers have raised off their docks and we transplant these oysters into the reef breakwater to really jumpstart that ecosystem. Because the more oysters that come onto the reef, the better the water quality will be around the reefs. And all in all, it's just a wonderful restoration of a coastal habitat. And we are doing 
so many living shorelines right now. Last year, or 2018 alone, we restored four acres of living shoreline, or 4,700 linear feet. So we're really pumped to see homeowners especially embracing the living shorelines instead of the gray infrastructure solutions like riprap and uh, seawall. Yeah, I think that's really exciting to hear that so many homeowners and people that live along the coast and own coastal properties are turning to that solution um, in understanding why that might be the better solution. Um, And I think some of my favorite restoration projects are the ones that pair human innovation with, um, you know, features that nature creates on its own. You know, like I feel like the natural world has it pretty well figured out. Um, so all we need to do is look at, you know, how that all works. And then instead of creating something new and recreating the wheel, um, you know, sort of put it into action and play, um, to benefit us and help reduce our own footprint, um, on our coastlines. Yeah. And we really try to drive that message home by incorporating our education programs with our living shoreline initiatives. So we have monthly lessons for elementary school, middle school, and high school. They're all separate programs. Um, The elementary school is called uh, Grasses and Classes. Then in middle school, they have Dunes and Schools. And then they graduate uh, in high school to Spat On. And Spat is a scientific (laughs) name for a baby oyster. Those are great names. Yes. Whoever named those was a genius. I'm not going to say that. (laughs) So in each of those three programs in the middle school and elementary school, they actually raise their own marsh grasses and sea oats and plant them in real restoration sites. So they're doing the restoration with their own hands, which really reinforces all the coastal ecology lessons they get in school. And the high school students, they build uh, oyster reef breakwater themselves and learn how to monitor the progress of the oysters growing on the on the breakwater. So each of these education programs has a really hands-on component, which not only makes it way more fun, but helps people remember those experiences after they've moved on from K through 12 education. Absolutely. And it's teaching them a skill too, you know, like there's going to be a, probably a subset of those people that have that same passion ignited in them that we have Um, through those experiences. I mean, not all of them will, but it's still such a great experience for all of them to have, for all of them to get out and experience um, and make the connection about here, you know, from seed to planting, um, just learning about our ecosystem and how circular it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is really clear to me after hearing you speak about your work that you are so passionate about what you do Um, And I really appreciate you for that. And I am curious to hear a little bit more about what is your favorite thing about working for CBA and what is your favorite thing about the organization? Definitely the staff, like easily the staff. (laughs) So it's, it's really interesting to work in an environment where everyone likes the same activities that you do. So we all like to be outside. We all are really curious when someone brings in a, a weird snake in from the from the ground. <laughs> like my boss had a monarch butterfly in her office this week, and my coworker grows um, succulents on her desk. I mean, it's just a group of people who are super super passionate about the environment 
and not only what we do in our you know professional lives but also what we do outside of work and it's a really great team environment and we get to do really fun things you know i think that ecologists are the modern adventurers and the modern explorers you know they do field work out in the bay and they're snorkeling or they're paddling up the Choctahatchee River or they're wading through the living shoreline to count oysters and same seahorses. So it's a very great combination of working with people who are really passionate about what they do and are doing really cool things. So that's what, and I've heard that from other environmental organizations too. We're just all very lucky that even though sometimes it feels like an uphill battle, that it's something we really care about. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's a great way to put it. Um, I also feel very fortunate in my work life that I get to interact and develop relationships with the people that I do because they're very bright, very passionate. But at the end of the day, they're also like very just cool people. (laughs) Like a lot of my friends are people that I work with because they're um, really just special folks that um, care. And I appreciate that. And I, I enjoy that and want to surround myself with people that are like that. Um, So after hearing about all of your work and all the great things that you all do at CBA, um, I'm sure some of our listeners are interested in learning a little bit more about how they can engage with your work. Um, Some of them may not be down in Florida and want to help volunteer, and others might want to know on more of a national level if there's a way for them to follow along um, and get engaged. Yeah, there's really opportunities for all different types of people and time commitments. So the best thing to do is log on to our website at basinalliance.org. You don't even have to spell Choctahatchee. It's just <laughs> basinalliance.org. And we keep Probably it. smart for yeah, branding. Very smart. <laughs> we didn't want people to be piping in for like an hour at a time. So um, we have a fairly active blog that keeps people updated on what we're doing. We also have a fun in the news page to follow along with our, our news coverage. And so if you don't live close to us, you can become a member with just in the specific program that you're interested in. So if you're like, I really just want to support education, you can do that. Or if you want to adopt an entire classroom, you can do that. And you don't have to live here in order to do that. So if you're interested in coming to this area to visit, we also have opportunities for locals and visitors alike. For example, every single month, we have volunteer reef building events. So that could be shell bagging, that could be wading along the coast to actually place the shells, that could be planting grasses. It's an amazing opportunity to do hands-on restoration. And because we're doing so many living shorelines, there's always an opportunity. And so if you're interested in seeing what we're doing and when, you can either uh, follow us on Facebook, where we do a lot of different updates and things like that, and that's facebook.com slash Alliance. Or you can sign up on our website for a newsletter, which always has the volunteer activities going. If, dear listeners, you actually live in this area, you can sign up for reef building. You can sign up to be a monthly water quality monitor. You can also sign up to be an oyster gardener. And our oyster gardeners actually live on the bay, and they raise oysters for us to transplant into our reef breakwaters. So there's so many ways that people can get involved. So many amazing ways to get involved. And when you were mentioning the Living Shoreline and Oyster Reef planting events, I was like, I need to get down there, come visit and help out. That sounds like an incredible opportunity. Plus, if this conversation 
has sparked interest in this kind of thing for any of the listeners, I will say that another great way to get involved wherever you are is to follow the international coastal clean updates. And I can pretty much guarantee that if you live near the water, there is an international coastal cleanup event near you. These tend to happen near Earth Day or they tend to happen in the fall. And marine debris affects everyone. And so while we're cleaning up down here and you're cleaning up up there or wherever you live, we are all contributing to the same goal of reducing plastic pollution in our area. And I'm glad that you gave that a specific shout out because speaking of citizen science and how important it is, these coastal cleanups are not only valuable for removing marine debris from our shorelines, but also gathering really important data about what kinds of plastics or litter or waste we're finding on our coast. So then we can move on to start figuring out how to reduce those at the source so they aren't ending up on our shorelines and having to be picked up during things like beach cleanups. So um, before we wrap up, just from one writer and photographer to another, so just a little aside for listeners because I know many of you are still getting to know me. Uh, When I'm not working during my day job with the American Literal Society or recording this podcast, I am most likely writing or out exploring with my camera in hand. Um, So that is another connection that Erica and I share. Um, And I would like to know from Erica a little bit more about how writing and uh, photographing the natural world has impacted your own worldview and perspective on conservation. Well, I originally didn't want to go into communication. So when I, I got my master's degree, I was really interested in project management. I wanted to be the person who actually gets the new restoration projects in the ground. And so that's what I did for Okaloosa County for two years. I was working on ecotourism projects. I was working on artificial reef projects. But I found myself having way more enthusiasm for telling people about all the amazing things that were happening than actually doing some of the day-to-day logistical work and procedural work that is necessary to put a project in the ground. And so I've really always been interested in writing and photography. And if I hadn't had that experience, you know, writing for different resources or doing all that things, I don't think I would have had the courage to make the transition between um, something like project management to communications, which is a more amorphous job. And it really changes a lot from organization to organization. But because I was so interested in writing and photography, and because I had some success publishing and I was a National Geographic Young Explorer, I was able to really commit to that. And I'm so happy I did because it's absolutely what I'm passionate about. And for me, there's almost no, there's not a clean break between my work and my freelance stuff because you know, when I'm at CBA, I'm doing communication work about all the great things that we do. And then when I'm, you know, off the clock per se, I'm doing a lot of communication work about the great things that other people do. So it's, it, there's no separation in a good way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense to me. And I also feel like writing and photography um, are both art forms. You know, they take discipline and they take practice, but they're a really great tool 
to get outside and experience the world and try to see things through a different lens, really bad pun, not necessarily intended, but you know, to like get out and try to like share your experience out in nature with other people um, and help bring people in by sharing those stories and those images. Um, I think it's a really amazing way for me to, you know, get outside and have an, an a really like personal connection and experience with the natural world. Yeah. And the only thing, cause we've mostly been saying about how awesome environmental communication is. So I will say one, <laughs> the one caveat is that it's very difficult when you really get into the environmental communication mode yes. to turn it off. Yes. So I can hardly ever, sometimes I have to literally make myself go on a hike or go to the beach or, or walk on a trail without a camera so that I can mm-hmm. enjoy being there in the moment and absorbing it just for me, not for transmission to other people. And it's actually an emotional effort to, to do that because I'm so in the mode of communicating everything that is happening in my outdoor life that sometimes I forget to take moments just for me in the, in the outdoors. And so yeah, it's sort of just something I was reflecting on as you were as you were talking about your experience doing outdoor photography and writing too. So it's a, it's a yeah, yeah, it does take being intentional about finding those moments where you're like, I am just going to go for a walk and clear my mind and observe things around me um, just for me. Versus, you know, I'm I'm going to have my camera and it's I'm working and. Um, it, it is very important to make that distinction. Um, and also not to launch into an, another entire show's worth of content because we could take a serious deep dive both into the photography and writing thing, but also into this next question. Um, but I'm interested in hearing about what do you think are some of the most pressing environmental challenges that we face moving forward? Oh, it's so easy to just say climate change and be like, fun. So, <laughs> so I'll I'll break it into two because these are the ones that really I think about on a day to day basis. So, climate change, climate change, climate change. There was a, a really fabulous article today in Vox about thinking about life on Earth after that two degree mark is passed, which will probably pass. And so, there needs to be a a change in political will to address climate change and also a focus on resiliency. So here at CBA, we're very focused on resiliency. So we're helping communities through living shorelines and other things adapt to what could be a changing world in our area. And so that is something that's on my mind all the time. At CBA, we're also very invested in reducing marine debris. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about plastic pollution and how horrible plastic pollution is not only for wildlife, but also for human health as well. And so we are ramping up our recycling program to include more fishing line, to include cigarette butts, to increase the number of coastal cleanups that we do, and just reaching out to people and, you know, do the simple things like say no to straws. I hate straws. Sometimes you can't help it. And that drink gets to your table before you can say no straws. But bring your, you know, simple things, bring your own cup pressure businesses to use reusable items. And so for me, both, you know, just as a person who lives near the coast and someone who works for a coastal organization, it's 
climate change and plastic pollution are the things that I anticipate spending most of my time dealing with in the coming years. Yeah. And I think that was a great response. And also would love just to note that I think a theme that was woven through what you just said is being proactive versus reactive, which I think is a place that we need to get to as communities and as a society in a, you know, global, as global citizens, um, is trying to find ways to be more proactive about um, stopping things at the source and doing what we can before we have to spend, you know, billions and billions of dollars um, fixing something after a disaster. Right. Yeah. And uh, I... I always love to end on an uplifting note. Okay, good. Because <laughs> um, it can be very easy in the climate world to just go down into like a dark hole and be like, oh, it's so sad. And never- and, uh, <laughs> uh, but what are you hopeful for moving forward? I'm so hopeful about the amount of chatter, I guess is a good word, about environmental issues you know, in 2019, even compared to 10 years ago, like Vox is writing about it and NPR is covering all kinds of different wildlife things. And again, our new Florida governor is really so far passionate about water and local citizens are becoming more engaged and local papers are writing about the outdoor world and Instagram influencers are starting to have an impact on changing people's attitudes. So one thing that makes me extremely hopeful is that for a long time, environmental issues were kind of simmering on the back burner. And I really believe that not since the 1960s have we had this moment of public consciousness where environmental issues were talked about with such a frequency. I mean, I love late night comedians and they bring up things like climate change and resiliency and preparing for natural disasters frequently. And that's, you know, that's almost unimaginable if you compare it to even 10 years ago. So as a communications specialist, that makes me very hopeful that we're building momentum um, for positive change. Yes, I'm very hopeful for that too. And I think it, it's been really incredible to watch how um, climate change has taken off into the mainstream and everyday conversation um, whether it is good or bad or people, you know, I won't get into people believing in it or not. Um, but you know, people are talking about it and that is really amazing to see in a step in a really great direction, um, in terms of us moving forward and taking action. Um, and before I let you go, I would love to give you an opportunity to share any other parting words um, or advice for our listeners. My piece of advice is that most communities have an organization like CBA. Um, It could be a nonprofit organization. It could be a chapter of a larger organization like the Audubon Society or Trout Unlimited. It could be an interested citizen group, but most coastal communities have some kind of organization that deals directly with coastal issues. And if these are the kinds of things that appeal to you, if you're a beach lover, if you like to swim, if you're an an avid angler, these organizations could not function without dedicated volunteers and members. So I encourage you, you know, either to reach out to us at CBA, become a member at CBA, or become involved in your own local organization because 
a lot of these things really do start from the ground up in these grassroots movements and every single person can make a difference in their coastal community. And yes, everybody, please go get involved with CBA. And if you are located in the Mid-Atlantic region, I feel like Erica perfectly set me up to give a little plug for my own organization, the American Literal Society. It's based in New Jersey, and they do just that, everything that Erica was saying. They are very involved with on-the-ground restoration projects and environmental education initiatives. Um, so for you Mid-Atlantic folks out there, there is a an option um, nearby. But please give CBA a follow and engage with their work because they're doing really incredible um, stuff for our environment. Um, and so Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with me and our listeners today. I really appreciate you, all that you do um, and all that CBA does to help our environment and um, help make sure that people are involved and have an opportunity to get out and enjoy it. Yeah, thank you. Maybe over Christmas we can get out the old softball gloves and see if we as awkward as we remember being. <laughs> yes. Oh God. It's like a bunch of washed up athletes, but I will I will take you up on right. that. You better That'll believe be it. I'll I'll dust off my old catcher's mitt. Um, <laughs> um I'd also like to take the time to thank the listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard and want to hear more please subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts to get this and other outstanding podcasts by subject matter experts that are all focused on our American shorelines. And finally, be sure to like the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook. This is where you can interact with us and submit feedback on our shows. You can also do that by reviewing our shows wherever you listen to podcasts. And then if you would like to interact with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. It's a silly name, but what are you going to do? I'm kind of a silly person. Um, and then on Instagram, it's the same thing, Yenna Benna, but the Yenna has three N's in it. Um, and then I frequently tweet and post about ocean and conservation issues in addition to random musings throughout the day. Um, so find me on there and we'll have a conversation. Um, and thank you again for listening. And my last thanks is to Lex Media out here in the beautiful um, Lexington, Massachusetts area for allowing me to use their fantastic podcast studio and my friend Devin Shaw for helping with um, all of the technical um, aspects that go into recording here. I'm very appreciative. Um, so I look forward to continuing to share important stories of coastal advocacy with you, and I will catch up with you next time.